First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Thanks for being with us this morning. Well, there are new reports today that the death toll from the bombing attack yesterday in Afghanistan has risen. And for the very latest on what's happening there, we are now joined by Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. Reggie, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Good morning. What do we know at this point as far as what's happening on the ground in Afghanistan? So on the ground in Afghanistan, uh, things have reverted to essentially how they were in the hours before uh, these twin attacks took place on Thursday. There are people that are once again crowded at the gates uh, to the uh, airport in Kabul. There are evacuation flights that are leaving, but there is a heightened sense of security and fear knowing that in these kind of final days of this U.S. mission after 20 years, uh, there is an enhanced risk here that something else could go off and go wrong and potentially kill more people. The latest numbers that we're getting uh, this morning out of Afghanistan, 113 people were killed, 180 injured. And when you say that things kind of have gone back to where they were before, there must be a heightened sense of tension, to say the least. Do, Do we have any idea if more people will be saved, will be able to be flown to safety? So we understand that this evacuation mission from the Americans is going to continue at least through uh, August 31st, which is the deadline that Joe Biden put in place. But what we have to remember is that the U.S. military also needs to clear itself out. It also needs to deal with the military assets that it has on the ground, whether it's going to airlift its equipment out, whether it's going to potentially continue detonating uh, to to get rid of its military equipment. That is something that's going to take time. So they are still anticipating thousands of people will be able to be taken out of Afghanistan. Even yesterday, President Biden made comments uh, that this uh, this mission to bring eligible Afghans could continue beyond August 31st. There's no details on that, and it's really unclear how that's going to happen, especially when there's no U.S. boots on the ground. What do we know at this point about ISIS-K, the group that has claimed responsibility for these attacks? So this is an offshoot of the main branch of the so-called Islamic State that operates inside Afghanistan. It kind of harbors itself with people from multiple different terrorist organizations inside the country that kind of then line themselves up under one umbrella. ISIS-K, the fear of an attack from them, has really been circulating for the last several weeks as the United States tries to get themselves out of there. What's interesting here is that the United States is now relying on the Taliban to ensure that security around the airport is intact uh, to keep ISIS-K out. And that is because the Taliban does not want to see anything that's going to slow down the U.S. from leaving the country. So you now have uh, a terrorist organization designated by the U.S. acting as an ally to the U.S. to try and keep a secondary terrorist organization at bay. What this does is raise questions. When the United States is gone, what happens uh, when there is no intelligence on the ground? Does Afghanistan just become a safe haven for any number of terrorist organizations. You mentioned the equipment and the U.S. weapons, what the U.S. still has in Afghanistan. I was seeing reports yesterday and today as well about how much of that is now presumed to be in the hands of the Taliban. How much of a concern is it that the Taliban now has these weapons and vehicles and and information about Afghans that helped out as far as interpreters and, and the biometrics of people? 
Well, look, the U.S. is in a position right now where it needs to put trust in an organization that it, it, it originally was trying to go after as one of the main culprits of terror around the world from that country. And yes, they do have military assets after they were able to take over those uh, those bases and take over the armed forces that were trained uh, by Americans. So they are in possession of uh, that kind of uh, uh, assets, uh, the guns, the, the weaponry, uh, and the intelligence. Uh, I, I, you know, this is going to be a wait and see moment for the United States. Does the Taliban uh, take what it has now and and kind of go back on any of the promises or words that it's made, not only to President Biden, but also former President Trump? Or do they use it to try and, you know, as they say, make Afghanistan some kind of unified country? It's worth remembering the Taliban does not have the skill to be a def- uh, an in-charge government, nor do they have the capabilities of understanding uh, security when it comes to dealing with other nations. So this is going to be a moment that the United States is going to have to watch from afar, potentially with some of their assets on the ground. Right. And I would imagine a lot of people would hear that and think, well, on what grounds would the United States or any country for that matter trust the Taliban? Well, look, trust, it's got to be a two-way street here. Uh, and, and the Taliban have have really, over the last 20 years and the years that they were in power, never shown that they were a force that can be trusted. Uh, but the U.S. has put themselves into the position now because of the original plan that was drafted by President Trump to leave that country and leave that country in the hands uh, of the Taliban. This is where that concern is for these eligible Afghans who could be uh, uh, obtaining some kind of visa for, for the U.S. or for any other country. What's going to happen to them? The Taliban has given word that they will not go after and they'll provide amnesty to the people who assisted foreign troops. But again, the Taliban is not someone who can be easily trusted, which is why you have so few governments, if any, around the world reaching out and extending an olive branch to say, we welcome this new government of Afghanistan. There's a lot of unknowns, uh, not only in the days after August 31st, but really in the days leading up to the 31st as well. And we just wanted to quickly touch on Canada's role. As we know, Canada ended its role in the evacuations yesterday. Do we have any idea. I also saw that uh, the Canadian affair or global affairs spokesperson uh, said no Canadians were injured in those attacks. But do we know what Canada's role will be moving forward? We, we, uh, well, look, the, the role of any international uh, organization is going to be ba- uh, kind of dependent on what NATO does as a whole and, and how the United States tries to move this forward. Because look, if the president of the United States is saying that there is a potential here that we could get, that the country could get Afghans out that are eligible after August 31st, does that mean that there could be a reliance on some form uh, of international uh, uh, kind of camaraderie here to get Afghans out? That is still an unknown. What we understand, Canada's mission has wrapped up. 3,700 people were evacuated as a part uh, of those missions out of Kabul. We don't know what is going to happen beyond that. There's going to have to be uh, something to be done with uh, with the number of refugees that have been brought out of the country resettlement is going to be an issue that is likely heavily talked about, especially on the campaign trail for the next few weeks. But given the fact that this is a U.S.-led exit out of Afghanistan, that really NATO's hands have been tied to that, it is up in the air as to what happens after the 31st and what other countries may deem it fit or, or necessary to stay in or go back in to deal with any kind of work. All right, Reggie, we'll leave it there. As always, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. It is time to check in with the Vancouver Suns' Vaughn Palmer. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. And may I just say that you are worried uh, about the wrong thing. Oh. The issue is not how fast a boa constrictor can slither. 
<laughs> the issue is how long would it take an Asian giant hornet yes. to fly from Blaine, Washington <laughs> to my backyard here in Victoria? My guess is they move a hell of a lot more quickly than a snake. Yeah, I would agree. And getting away from a murder hornet would probably be more difficult than fleeing from the boa. Yeah, well, I've been careful about not going outdoors uh, <laughs> for the last two years uh, since the uh, the first sighting in Nanaimo, which is even closer in my mind than Blaine, although I think if you look at a map, it's about the same, but in any event. All right, well, stay safe. I'm worried. Keep the, the beekeeper's hat on. Uh, what else the are we Beekeeper's oh. hats won't protect you, Jill. They sting <laughs> through protective clothing, uh. and they sting sting like a red-hot steak knife. We have that testimony from one of the poor workers in Nanaimo who actually had to suppress the, the nest up there. Oh, I remember him. Now that you mention that, I do remember that description and thinking, no, I never want to be anywhere near one of those hornets. But there yeah. you go. We will stay. We will stay safe as safe stay, as we stay, can. Stay uh, on top of the story. Yes, <laughs> that's what we do. All right. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about uh, universities because there was some clarification wanted about vaccinations, whether it was going to be mandatory or not. But now we're seeing uh, universities, in some cases, uh, taking that on themselves. Yeah, I think this is uh, interesting that the universities are taking the lead on this and. <laughs> Wow, the one that really jumped out at me was the law faculty here in Victoria, the at the University of Victoria, and basically they're they want tougher mandates regarding vaccinations and testing uh, in the classroom when schools reopen. So the announcements we've had in the last week or so um, has been rolled out slowly and somewhat confusingly, I have to say, have said, well, you know, um, there will be mandates for you have to get vaccinated. Uh, Vaccination cards will be once they're up and running. uh, They'll be required for non-essential services. But Dr. Bon Henry was careful to say, no, no, education's an essential service. You won't have to be vaccinated you, you may have to be va- you will have to be vaccinated to be precise to go into the pub at the university or to use the gym uh, but the students will not have to be vaccinated to step into a classroom well um the universities were given some leeway to have add requirements and they we've already seen now uh, i know you're reporting it on the news uh, the big uh, four universities in bc have banded together and said well we are going to require Um, vaccination or testing um, when schools resume. Um, I think it's an example of what we've seen in general, which is the public and some institutions and business and some institutions are actually ahead of our governments in these requirements. I think they can read the opinion polls that show overwhelming public support for tougher measures on masking and on vaccination passports. And uh, yeah, I think you're right. And also, yeah, reading the room and seeing if this is what people want and they're going to feel more comfortable, because if not, and you've suddenly got an outbreak, then what happens? Yeah, yeah. And I think you're right, Jill. And that one in particular, you know, people who are looking at businesses on this, um, and and we're seeing some businesses grandstanding and saying they're not going to have mask mandates and they're not going to have, they're not going to enforce the vaccination uh, passport or identification system. Um, You know, I think what they're overlooking is something that the government has quietly flagged on this, which is you get an outbreak, you're going to get a notice put up, and you're going to get shut down. They're running not just the risk that 
uh, concerned members of the public who are vaccinated will boycott their businesses and just not go there because they don't think the places are safe. But they're also running the risk of being shut down. And I think that's one of the things that's driving um, that's driving uh, businesses. I think it's also there in the back of the mind of university faculty, of universities themselves, of saying, okay, well, you know, uh, we, could, we, we, we can't really run the risk on this because think of the disruptions to the education system, think of the disruptions to classrooms uh, for faculty uh, if in the midst of classes there is an outbreak and wow, um, everybody has to be isolated for two weeks, Uh, the entire teaching schedule is disrupted, it may spill over into other classes, I mean students in in a day go between classes, it's not it's not quite the same as as some schools, although in schools I recognize in K-12 students move around as well. So, um, you know, I think you're seeing a, a, a precautionary principle taking over here, and I don't think we're at the end of the road in terms of restrictions. I wouldn't be surprised to see more restrictions coming as they try to contain the fourth wave and as they try to deal with the very transmissible Delta variant. What about uh, we? some good news? A lot happening in Victoria, talking about yeah. the universities, uh, some of the businesses, but also the tourism sector got a bit of a reprieve. Yeah, Victoria has uh, been very concerned about losing a complete second tourism season because of COVID-19 restrictions. So it's a bit of a mixed story. But the year began, of course, with the third wave, and that was bad news because it meant we probably weren't going to be reopening. Even when Canada reopened the land border, the marine border remained closed, and we also lost another season of cruise ships. So collectively, that was bad news. Now, we did have some good news uh, this past week here in Victoria. The Canada Border Service Agency finally got around to saying, okay, uh, we're going to be staffing, we're going to reopen ferry terminals uh, for ships services from the U.S. So uh, that finally, I think uh, that was the reaction here in Victoria because it's taken them so long to get to it. Um, It is not wide open. It is not uh, everything is coming back. There are three ferry services that link the provincial capital region to the U.S. Only one of them is coming back. That's the Clipper. It's a passenger service from Seattle. It brings about 85% of its travelers are Americans who are coming to Victoria for a day trip or a holiday trip or a weekend. They are resuming along with uh, just after uh, the Canada border opens, the marine border opens next month. So that's good news. The other service, the Coho, it's a car ferry that links to Port Angeles and the Washington State Ferry that links to Sydney, British Columbia. They are not coming back right away. They rely a lot more heavily on Canadians going south And, of course, the American border is still close to Canadians going south uh, at the land level, although you can fly there. So it's not 100% restoring, but um, I keep hearing, Jill, uh, here in the capital, uh, rumblings from the business community that there are an awful lot of businesses here that are tourist-dependent that have been clinging with their fingernails. And um, when the tourist season is over this fall, uh, we may see some more businesses failing.
All right. Uh, not the best news there for businesses, so for sure. Uh, we have a couple of minutes. Wanted to talk to you about Ferry Creek because we're talking about this a bit later on in the program as well. Uh, what is your take on what's happening there with protesters, with the, the First Nations that are, have asked them to leave? Where are we at? Well, Premier John Horgan, as you know, has not exactly been heavily available uh, to talk to the media for the past month, but he did get asked about Ferry Creek during his media conference this week, and he continued to defend the B.C. government position on this. So he has said that, uh, you know, the province has taken a lot of steps to protect old-growth forests, and he chose to remind the protesters that the First Nation there, the Pachidat, have said, this is the Premier's quote, quite clearly, not once, not twice, not three times, but five times to the protesters, please leave our territory and allow us to resolve these issues in our own way. So I don't see any sign that the government's changing its position on this. On the long run, they're dealing with old growth in the short run. Um, They're not bending to the protests. They're reminding the protesters that they're at odds with the leadership of that First Nation. And I think the other thing, some of the New Democrats are, BC New Democrats, grumbling a bit that, well, the federal... NDP is grandstanding a bit on the old growth issue, and uh, of course, that ultimately at the expense of the provincial government. So, um, but no sign, Jill, I can see that uh, Oregon is going to give in to those protests. Uh, his position is that we're already dealing with old growth, uh, we're making progress on it, and the First Nation is working with the provincial government on this, and, and it's the protesters who aren't on side with the First Nation. All right. We will leave it there, Vaughn. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Hopefully those hornets don't make their way uh, to Vaughn's yard. That is Vaughn Palmer with the Vancouver Sun, his view from Victoria. Let's take a look at what is happening with COVID numbers and how doctors in this province are gearing up to deal with what is going to very likely be a very busy fall. Dr. Matthew Chow is the president of Doctors of BC, and he joins us on the line now. Dr. Chow, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Good morning. How are doctors preparing as we head into the fall into what is respiratory disease season and with the Delta variant and current vaccination numbers? Well, I think what you're seeing now is uh, increasing uh, precautions being taken, mandates being used, uh, all pointing towards uh, a fall where full participation in society is going to require vaccination. Um, And certainly we are very pleased to see the growing numbers of people getting their first shot. Um, No judgment, you know, for those that did wait until now, until there were were vaccine mandates and other measures put in place to get their shots. What's important is that we're seeing those people getting vaccinated. Uh, So what are your thoughts on the vaccine certificate or passport or or whatever we want to call it that will be in place as of September 13th? Well, what we saw in other jurisdictions like France and Quebec is that there's an immediate uh, increase in the number of people that are willing to get their vaccine after a mandate like that is announced. And we're seeing it here in B.C., uh, a, su- a substantial increase in the numbers of people you know, getting, uh, getting their shot, attending drop-in clinics uh, to do that. And that's certainly, uh, that's certainly reassuring to see. We've seen a couple of reports of people going to a clinic, one specific clinic in Enderby, a couple of different reports of people saying they were turned away from the clinic because they haven't been vaccinated. Is that is that permitted that a clinic can refuse service if somebody hasn't been vaccinated for COVID-19? Uh, first off, uh, this particular instance, I think, is, is 
extraordinarily uncommon. It's actually the first instance that I've uh, I've been uh, party to or, or known about. Um, at this time, the direction from our College of Physicians and Surgeons, this is the uh, regulatory body that regulates physicians in this province, has directed physicians that uh, they are uh, to see patients uh, regardless of their vaccination status and provide care. And this is part of our professional duty as physicians is to provide care to all comers. However, uh, the college advises and certainly we as an organization advise our members to take the necessary precautions when dealing with people that are unvaccinated uh, because an unvaccinated person, an eligible unvaccinated person right now in this province does pose a risk. They pose a risk to themselves uh, because of the highly transmissible nature of the Delta variant of COVID-19. It just seems to be very, very efficient at finding and infecting unvaccinated people. And unvaccinated individuals also present a risk to other people, especially people who cannot be vaccinated, uh, such as young children and people who are immunocompromised or people who are on medications that may impair their immune system. And so doctors have to take certain precautions, uh, including pre-screening patients for their vaccination status, which is permitted. Uh, and arranging their clinic in such a fashion as to separate people that are unvaccinated uh, from people that may be potentially immunocompromised or or uh, cannot be vaccinated. Uh, so would that that would be the necessary precautions that you referenced? That's right. Yeah. So uh, what uh, some of our members are doing is that they're they're taking the unvaccinated patients and seeing them either in the very beginning of the clinic day or at the very end of the clinic day when there are fewer patients around. Uh, and making sure that there's uh, no one else in the waiting room or no, and, and certainly no one uh, nearby that may be immunocompromised or, or cannot be vaccinated. Um, these, these variants are just so transmissible. Um, we just want to take the utmost precautions to, to protect all of our patients. And I I get what you're saying. So pre-screening is permitted. So health officials are allowed to say, have you received one dose or are you fully vaccinated for COVID-19? Do you think, could it go to a place where people are required to take, say, a rapid test before somebody would be required to take a rapid test before coming into a clinic or before coming into that kind of healthcare environment? Yeah, I don't want to speculate on that right now um, because the the situation is, is still evolving. Um, but I think it should be pretty abundantly clear to the public right now, given all of the measures announced uh, this week and the measures being announced all over the country, really. You know, you can't get on a plane unless you're vaccinated. You can't go to a concert. You can't go to a movie. You can't, uh, you, you know, you, to be on campus at UBC and at UVic and, and other post-secondary institutions all across the country. Now there's a vaccination requirement or, or a submission of rabbit testing. I think it should be abundantly clear to people that, the, the, the right way to go is, is to get vaccinated to protect yourself and to protect others. Right. It seems like a bit of a, a blending almost of the essential and non-essential when it was announced that the certificate was for non-essential things, uh, things that you just mentioned, like like restaurants or concerts or such. Are you co- confident or more confident that with having places like universities and such bring in tougher measures, will that help keep the spread down? I think every bit matters. You know, what we're finding is that you, you need different layers of protection. You, do, you need different layers of, of mandates uh, to, to affect, you know, the, the societal, you know, uh, protection and, and coverage with the vaccine. Um, you know, I, I do want to emphasize that for essential services, you know, for example, if you, if you break your arm 
and you're not vaccinated, someone's going to care for you. Someone's going to take care for you, take take care of it. Someone's going to make sure that you you get better. Um, and so I I want to reassure people that we're not talking about preventing people from accessing essential services, but for anything discretionary, you know it's it's become pretty clear that you're going to need to be vaccinated. And that being said, to protect our essential services, you know, because th- this is now 18 months into this pandemic, our, our doctors, our nurses, all the staff in our hospitals and our clinics, they're, they're, they're exhausted, a lot of them. You know, people are burning out. Um, people are, are, are highly fatigued. And so uh, we, we just don't have that same capacity that we might have had in earlier waves, even if the ventilators and all the beds and all the equipment are there. We need human beings to staff them. And so if we keep hitting our healthcare workers with wave after wave, you know, something's going to break. Uh, and so I, I, I urge the public that's, that's listening to this to do the right thing and get vaccinated, you know, for your sake, for the sake of your communities, your neighbours, your friends, your family, but also for our healthcare workers who, who are doing their very best and have been and will continue to do so. Um, but we're only human. And if enough of us go down, um, regardless of mandates, we're not going to be there to be able to help people if, if that happens. So it's really important that people do the right thing and, and take their precautions as directed by public health and to get vaccinated. Uh, we saw the numbers go up when the province announced the vaccine certificate that it would be required to access these non-essential businesses. We did see that bump in people booking their vaccinations. Are you hearing that or are doctors hearing that as well, that some of the, the reluctance hasn't been so much that people are, are, are not interested in getting vaccinated? They just weren't for whether it wasn't convenient or they'd put it off. What are you hearing as far as some of the reasons why people maybe haven't got the shot so far? Yeah, there's there's a number of different reasons. I mean, we talk a lot about hardcore anti-vaxxers, as, as we, we might we might call them. You know, people that have very very hardened views of, about vaccines and will never take a vaccine. You know, unless, unless compelled to. You know, that's actually fortunately a, a small number of people in Canada. That's it's not as big of a problem as it as it might be sort of south of the border. Um, but what what we have heard from people is that, especially younger folks. You know, there was a perception that, well, you know, I'm younger, so I don't need to worry about this as much. You know, it's, it's older folks that are getting in the hospital or dying. Well, newsflash here, with, with these highly transmissible variants, especially Delta, we're seeing more people end up in hospital. It's, it's, it's actually more likely to put you in hospital when you're unvaccinated. And it's, and it's even putting young people into hospital. So, so young people are not invincible uh, to, to this. Uh, so, so young. So there was that perception from some young people that they didn't need to worry about it as much. Um, yeah, there was the, there was some convenience factor. There was also, I think, people have some legitimate questions about the vaccine that that they hadn't uh, been able to get answered. And we're trying our very best to to reach out to everybody in so many different ways. The BC Centers for Disease Control, individual family physicians, having conversations with their with their patients and families, uh, just everyone, you know, on, on all team effort to try to get correct information out to people so that people can make the, the right decision around, uh, around vaccines. And just, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, just, I just had one other question in that we've seen mandatory vaccination brought in or will be mandatory in long-term care and for health sciences students who will be working in medical environments. Do you think we need that as well for all healthcare workers? Certainly, the the members of Doctors of BC, there's there's close to fifteen thousand of us. You know, would like to see mandatory vaccinations. You know, across healthcare, um, and 
in, you know, while we still have significant numbers of young people below the age of 12 who cannot be vaccinated, you know, I, I, I think we would not be adverse to seeing vaccine mandates in education and childcare as well. You know, certainly there can be an argument made for, for mandatory vaccinations in education and childcare given the significant unvaccinated populations there and, and, some, and some immunocompromised folks there as, as well. Uh, so, so, yeah, that's, that hasn't uh, happened at this time. As Dr. Henry has pointed out, the, the biggest risks has been in long-term care and assisted living, where there has been documented transmission from, from unvaccinated staff to, to people. And, and, you know, that's not acceptable. It's not acceptable that, that healthcare workers, you know, p- p- pose a risk like that to, to their patients and clients. Uh, so, so yeah, that that could be something that that comes down the pipe later on. Uh, you know, mandatory vaccinations across healthcare. It's certainly something our organization is calling for. All right, Dr. Chow, we'll leave it there. But thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate you making the time for us. Well, you're most welcome. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly—it's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, three more people were arrested at protests taking place at Ferry Creek. That brings the total to more than 800 arrests. That's since the RCMP started enforcing an injunction back in May. There have been plenty of discussions about this, about what's happening in Ferry Creek. So let's talk a bit more about this. And David Suzuki, who's a very well-known environmental activist, is joining us on the line now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, You've written about this as well. I know you wrote about this in the TIE. What are your thoughts on the protests that have been taking place and the arrests? Well, I think uh, we're ignoring that there are two issues involved here. One is the protests themselves. What is it it all about? It's not just about the Ferry Creek uh, bit of wilderness that's left. It's about the fact that we are trashing the planet, and we have no idea how these wild areas have been so abundant for us. The um, the leading ecologists of the world, led by E.O. Wilson, are calling for 50% of the planet to be left to be allowed for nature alone. We've got to, and I find that an astonishingly low uh, amount. We are one species out of anywhere between 10 and 100 million species of plants and animals. We don't know. We haven't identified most of the plants and animals on the planet yet. We know nothing about how they live, how they're productive. What these young kids are doing at Ferry Creek is saying, look, by trashing the remaining wild areas that we have, we, we are trashing the source of knowledge 
of how nature has been so uh, productive and abundant. They're trying to get the attention of our leaders to the, to the fact that we have a crisis of destruction of nature. The United Nations came out with a report on that in 2019. And, and uh, you know, coupled with that, forests on land, forests in the ocean are the last big uh, protection against climate change in the, se- in the sense that they are removing carbon and sequestering it. Um, we've got the twin crisis of climate change and species uh, diversity loss. And the planet is becoming unlivable for humans. Forget the million species that are in danger of disappearing right now. We are destroying the very uh, uh, planet on which we live and depend. It's crazy. You know, I listened to the to the uh, your report just before I came on here about Apple and all of the uh, considerations of uh, Apple's uh, value and all that stuff. What's wrong, folks? We are in an emergency. Don't British Columbians remember the heat dome? Don't we know that we've got problems with drought in the prairies? Don't we know we have a climate crisis? And nature, which is our best uh, safety net to protect us against climate change, is being destroyed. That's what the protest at Ferry Creek is all about. Now, there's another issue. How can we best protect these areas? Well, it turns out the best protection we we have are the indigenous people who've lived in these areas for thousands of years. Maybe they can guide us to uh, a a genuinely sustainable future. And so for me, you know, I applaud the kids that are out there getting arrested. I think it's horrifying that our so-called... uh, peacekeepers, that is, the, the Mounties, are, are using such terrible tactics against these kids. All they're asking is, for God's sakes, leaders, look at what you're doing to their future. How can they have a future when we're destroying these important areas for their future? Uh, but you also write about respecting the Indigenous leaders and the Indigenous nations in this area, many of whom have told these protesters numerous times to leave, that they don't want them there intervening, cutting down trees to block forestry roads. They want them out. Well, this is a dilemma, of course. The, uh, you know, we all say that uh, when we have a public meeting, we acknowledge that this is unceded territory and what these Uh, indigenous communities are are saying is, look, give us back our land so that we can control it, and then we will guide uh, sustainable development into the future. And, you know, my experience along the West Coast when we went in in the 1990s to help indigenous communities there find economic, community economic development, so they didn't have to clear-cut their forests for the revenue, uh, we went into them and ask permission to come onto their territory first. Now, uh, for me, you know, while I support the, the protests going on to save uh, wildlife and, and uh, nature, for me, I, I respect that this is Indigenous land, and uh, I, I have to be invited first. As you know, the community is, is uh, split, uh, the Pachidat uh, elder Bill Jones has been there with these protesters right from the beginning because the traditional uh, 
the, the, the traditional values would say protect these forests. But you have the elected representatives of the community who have this col- colonial imposition of their, uh, uh, of their government, this, this, uh, uh, the band councils, that's a colonial imposition, but they're concerned with, uh, with the revenue stream that they need to, uh, to uh, keep the communities going. Of course, they're in extreme poverty. And, uh, you know, right now the forest company is the best friend that they have. They're saying, oh, look, we can give you jobs and we can offer you economic uh, revenue. So they need uh, economic return so that they can uh, really apply their traditional values. So I don't want to exacerbate the split within the community. I, would, I have things to offer them that I would like to share, but uh, I choose not to go and, and uh, protest in the way these young people are. So there are the two issues. And I think that uh, uh, I want the indigenous community to, to show leadership. I think they need economic uh, opportunities, and they need revenue right now. And logging isn't the only opportunity they have. Right. But if but if there is a plan and if there is a plan that's deemed sustainable and, and something that's agreed upon, is it not the, the respectful thing to do to step aside and to say, yes, absolutely, the indigenous leaders, the elected leaders uh, are, are free to go ahead with that plan? Well, I think that uh, the, the communities have been impoverished. They have de- been deprived of the control of their territory. If you talk to, to someone like Bill Jones, the elder who's there at the, uh, at the front lines, uh, you know, what he's saying is we have a responsibility. You know, allowing uh, living on the abundance of nature, which is what indigenous communities have done for thousands of years, is not something you're just free to, uh, to do, to take and take and take. You have a responsibility to ensure that nature is protected and can continue to be uh, productive. That's the element that's missing in a lot of the colonially imposed governing uh, bodies. That is, they are trying to get the necessities for their communities to just live. You know, look at the, the number of indigenous communities across this country that don't even have access to clean water. Like, what the heck? They're, they're scrambling. And right now, many of these executives, the, only, uh, the, the governing bodies, the only opportunity, if government's not willing to give them back their land and, and give them back uh, some revenue to get going, the only uh, opportunities for many of these are, guess what? The mining companies coming in, the, the logging companies coming in, uh, the, the fishing industry coming in. Oh, yeah, those guys are all their best friends now because they're offering them some kind of economic opportunity now. They don't have the capacity to uh, apply their, their traditional values when they're deeply mired in poverty. Uh, we only have a couple of minutes. I wanted to, to talk a bit more generally, and I know we're focused on Ferry Creek and what's happening there, but you mentioned the heat dome. You mentioned what's happening in other parts of the world. You've spent your life trying to raise awareness about this, talking about this. So what are, what are your thoughts on the reaction or perhaps lack of reaction to these extreme events? 
Well, of course, I'm, uh, you know, it's, it's a very discouraging time because it's not me. I, I've just been a messenger. The scientists, the, in 1992, more than half of all Nobel Prize winners signed a document called World Scientists Warning to Humanity. And they documented the state of the planet and said we could have as little as 10 years to avoid absolute catastrophe. And, uh, you know, we didn't pay attention. Now we've got a, another lifeline from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that in 2019 said we may have, uh, what, 12 years by 2030. We've got to be off 50% of our use of fossil fuels. What the hell is happening? Our government now, you know, we had 10 years of, of Harper who said climate change acting on climate change is crazy economics. So economics, he elevated that above the atmosphere that gives us air to breathe and weather, climate and the seasons. The economy was more important so that doing anything about the atmosphere was, was going to ruin the economy. What the hell? Now we've got a government that said, no, Canada's back. We're going we're gonna to act on climate change. And then three years later, he buys a pipeline and says, you know, we need the, to expand production of oil from Alberta by building them a pipeline for the tax revenues to reduce our emissions. That's like saying, look, we know that smoking causes cancer. So let's increase the number of cigarettes we sell so that we can get the revenue from the taxes and find a cure for lung cancer. This is not dealing with the issue. It's not serious. All right. So let's get on with it. All right. We'll leave it there for today. David Suzuki, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Jill Bennett in for Simi Sarah. We have talked a lot about housing affordability. It has come up during the federal election campaign. It's something we've talked about in this province for years. Could the future embrace more tiny homes? And if so, how do we go about making that happen? Well, Kenton Zerbin is a high school teacher turned tiny home enthusiast. He's also running a workshop that is going to teach people more about this, and he is here to give us a bit of a sneak preview. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on the show. Before we get into the actual nuts and bolts of this, how did you get involved and excited about tiny homes? Actually, the, the journey was more about sustainable living at the beginning. I, I just wanted a house that modeled my values. I wanted to live more sustainably. So uh, I got trained in an uh, area of design called permaculture, found myself working on numerous alternative homes uh, when I traveled around the world and definitely got the most excited by uh, tiny homes in terms of having less impact with less building materials and easier heating bill and, and choosing really high quality building materials. So when we say tiny homes, what size is your house? What are we talking about? <laughs> Mine's 260 square feet, but I always tell people tiny is relative to what you need. If you're a family of seven, it looks a little different than a family of two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't. Uh, if seven people in 260 square feet might be a bit of a squeeze. <laughs> it might be. You know, though, our grandparents had really, really small spaces for big families. So it's, it's actually the abnormal thing is today's average uh, housing uh, that people have. I, I do think that tiny homes are definitely a step towards a more logical place, but also historically make more sense. <laughs> <laughs> so even though uh, 260 square feet, though, somebody will think of that and say, even for one person, that's not a whole lot of room. So how do you organize it and how do you make it so it's comfortable? Multifunctional furniture and spaces is critical, but also prioritizing the spaces that are the most important to you. 
So a lot of tiny homes will have a very small bedroom because you use it and then you're not using it. Um, you get out of it and you go spend the rest of the time in your house. So I chose to have a, a large kitchen thinking, you know what, I, I'd rather feel comfortable in that space and not cramped. And my apartment, my kitchen that I have is actually bigger than most apartment kitchens. <laughs> but so I think knowing your priorities is, is first critical and then maximizing your space uh, is the next most important part. And when you're done in your big kitchen in the 260 square feet, do you do you retire to the sitting area after that? <laughs> yes. I've got a couch, which is a, a water tank as well. And then I have a table, which can transform from a breakfast bar into a table for eight. So it's all about, like I said, uh, making sure you know which space is the most important to you and then making sure that they can serve multiple purposes. You'd be amazed at what you can fit in and, and how luxurious and big it can feel. I'm looking at some pictures on the workshop webpage at the website, uh, pictures of your house, and it looks like you have some stairs as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, the website there, the tinyhouseworkshop.com. I've got, I've got some stairs going up to the loft, and then I've got a ladder on the opposite side of the house to get up to another loft. And this is always, a, a, how do you ascend in, in a small space? It's always interesting because you get some people say, oh, ladder is a perfectly fine way. And other people say, hell no, I'm not going to go up the ladder to get up to my, my bedroom and uh, to each their own. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess so. And then it depends, too, if you've got pets that you want to going up and down stairs or a ladder. Uh, so many other questions. So the loft, it looks like the loft is your bedroom and there's not a ton of, of headspace. You don't want to jump out of bed in that scenario. Or even have a nightmare too, but you know, too fast because right. you could sit up in bed too quick. You get some that cred, it's true. <laughs> now, the reason why, by the way, that that is that type of a space is my tiny house is designed actually to be more like an RV. And some tiny homes are designed for permanent building code. Some are designed for manufactured home building code. Some are designed around RV building code. And when you're RV, you have to fit on the highway. So your max height is 13 feet, 6 inches. And to have standing room downstairs, you'll never have standing room upstairs. Um, so I chose to, of course, have that bedroom be less emphasized. So I have full standing room down below. All right. So who is most interested in this? I know we've talked about tiny homes as ways of perhaps helping people that are homeless, so people that maybe are in tent cities, but also as a lifestyle choice if people want to downsize or people perhaps have space for a home this size. Who are you seeing most interested in these? You know, I'm seeing actually three big demographics. I'm seeing a young demographic of people who look at the housing market and saying, I can't afford this. Um, or I don't even want it because uh, often it means working a 40 to 50 hour work week for the next 40 years of your life to fill it with stuff, fill it with, you know, heat it when you're not there uh, and pay interest. And a lot of people say that doesn't, that doesn't interest me. Uh, I'd rather live a, a more full life in other ways. So there's definitely demographic people who are looking at minimalism, being happy uh, with other experiences rather than material possessions. Then there's the retiree market. Uh, and we know they're there because they love their RVs. They love to be snowbirds. And so this, this kind of can act as a, a, super, a super RV. <laughs> it's a nicer feeling and more efficient and can be more luxurious than most RVs can. And they don't have to stay in it all the time. Or maybe they do. Maybe they retire into a small space. Um, so those are, are two big demographics. And then you're right. You, didn't, you hit the nail on the head there earlier saying about affordable living. There are a lot of people as well who are just looking to have a house very cheaply or a housing solution in, in a housing crisis where a whole generation can't afford to have a house. And so they'll settle for having uh, a smaller house. Don't you still need physical space, though, to put it somewhere? 
Yes, you do. And so this gets to zoning bylaws. There's two sides, you know, z- building codes being how something's built, zoning being where it goes. Um, and so how you build it will determine where it goes. If you go RV, you're limited, but that's the easiest building code. You go manufactured home, those are discouraged in the city. Um, but rural, they're, you can get utility runs to them very easily. And then permanent building code, you have to find, <laughs> it gets, gets, gets tricky, you got to find your city's rules around usually an ADU, an auxiliary dwelling unit. So, for example, Vancouver having laneway housing is one. Edmonton's got garden suites. Uh, Ontario's got cottage houses or carriage houses. Um, so everywhere's got a different name for what they call a secondary structure on a property. And that seems to be the number one way in that cities right now are encouraging tiny homes. Uh, but there's a lot more room there uh, for our cities to support uh, infill and affordable housing. I know you're running a workshop that's starting up tonight. What's the average cost of building a tiny home? It ranges widely. I've seen someone do it for as cheap as $10,000, but that's you've got to be cutting corners and salvaging and doing it all yourself at that price point. Forty dollars to $60,000 is pretty common for a DIY build. And then once you pay someone else to do the work for you, you double the cost. So if you spend on 40 material, you're spending $80,000. Um, I spent almost $80,000 on materials. <laughs> I did most of the work myself. So they do range widely from 10000 to 150000 plus. So if somebody is coming to this workshop or hearing this and thinking, ah, I maybe want to learn more about that, what are they going to actually learn from, from this workshop that goes throughout the weekend? So we start with, how do you make any house? How does a house work? Uh, and that's a very important thing I think you all should have learned in school. And then we look at how to make it tiny and teach people how to design a small space and also design for the road, that a lot of these are going to be manufactured homes or RVs. And so I try to work with that as a basic limitations for house, a house floor plan design. And then go through all the utility systems and product reviews and also go through legalities. Uh, so they understand when they make one choice here, what does that mean for zoning, for example, here? Um, so they leave well-informed on how to make the space or how to hire a builder or how it's all going to work together. All right. Can people still sign up if they want to take part or learn more about this? Absolutely. we got four spots left in the course at uh, a tinyhouseworkshop.com. All right. Sounds good. Kenton, thanks so much for your time and for talking with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.